0: It's been a few weeks since we last learned. We are in the middle of Perik Dalad. The Jews have crossed the Yarden. The Yarden has split. The Jews have crossed the Yarden. The last thing we read, I believe, was Perik Dalad, Pasuk Yud. It says that the Kohanim, those who carried the Aron, remained in the Yarden until everything Hashem had instructed Yeshua, commanded Yeshua to do, to speak to the people. And when Moshe had commanded Yeshua back in the Chumash, and it said, The people... The people traveled swiftly across the Arden. We we spent uh, we spent a while discussing the idea that they went quickly. The, we, we mentioned the idea of we mentioned the idea of one of the commentaries, by Yaakov Pedanke, uh, that, that the the reason they rushed is because it was a dangerous situation they found themselves in. The the water had to water had the the water had to water had, the, the, the water had to, had to stay up there and not and, and, and not flood them. And the the rule is a person is, is not is, is supposed to avoid is, the person is supposed to avoid remaining in a dangerous spot, not stay there more than necessary. And therefore he was, uh, therefore they, 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 therefore 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 they rushed through in order to uh, in order to avoid remaining in that dangerous situation. We discussed it was a ace. The whole thing was an ace. You you might not have thought that was so dangerous, but that's what we discussed last time. The idea that they had to rush through to avoid staying there more than necessary. So now in Pasuk Yidalef, the Pasuk says, tam kol ha'am When the entire nation had completed crossing the Yarden, aron Hashem And now the Aron Hashem, the, the Ark of God, and the Koanim, who were carrying it, who were with it, they passed Lufnei This Pasuk is the source of a... It, there was a major debate about what this Pasuk actually means. The, the simple reading of the Pasuk is... As the Radak explains, what does it mean that after the the nation passed and the Aron passed, it means that the the Aron that had previously been at the head of the nation and now was behind because the whole nation passed across the Arden while the Aron stayed in the Arden. So the Aron that had previously been with Mei now the Aron was in the where the river had the river stopped flowing. It wasn't in the water, but it was, it was in the banks of the Arden where, where the river normally flowed. So the Aron now left the Ardain, and it's, uh, it had previously been Lufneha, and now the, the Arun, Arun finally left the Ardain and moved back to its. Now, uh, now, now it left the Ardane as well. Or the Radak said Lufneha means doesn't mean in front of the people; it was actually behind the people. But Lufneha means that it, it, it that it, it left the Ardain in the presence of the people, in the sight of the people. That that's a simple chat. Rashi brings a midrash that Rashi brings a Midrash that where the Kohanim went into the Yardin so the, the, the Jews were crossing from the East Bank of the Jordan to the West Bank. Eretz Israel is what we call you know, the West Bank today is an Arab area, but the, the West Bank is the Eretz Israel proper, is the West Bank of the Jordan. So the Jews were crossing from the desert, from the East Bank of the Jordan, over into Eretz Israel into the West Bank of the Jordan. So the, the so the, the Kohanim when they entered the Jordan, they, they took it, they, they they stepped into the Jordan, they stayed on the more or less the eastern edge of the Jordan. All the people crossed crossed the Yardin to the west side. Then the Kohanim stepped back out, back to the east side of the Yardin. And they were now on the opposite side of the Yardin from the people. The in, in, a, in a few seconds later, it's going to say the Kohanim left the Yardain, and when they did, it says the Nace, the, the miracle terminated, and all the waters came crashing down, and the river began to flow again as it was before. So the Kohanim, according to Rashi, according to the Midrash, were on the wrong side of the Yardain, because they stepped backward out of the Yardin? How do they get back to their place with Bali Israel? So there, the midrash says it was a great nace that occurred. That how did they cross? The, the, the water was flowing again. The whole point of the, the whole point of the nase was so they can cross because the water stopped. Now the water was going, and the Kli were stuck on the wrong side. So Hashem made a, a marvelous nace, a new nace. Aron noses nosa, a famous principle that the the Aron, the, the Ark of the Covenant, it actually carried those who were seemingly carrying it. And they, the Aaron lifted them up and swooped them across the river back to where back back to the Jewish people. That was the second marvelous nace that occurred in the in the context of the Jews crossing the Yarden. Right. Sort of like, so, so, so so the question is why? The question is what was the need for this? You know, let, let the Aaron wait as a rear guard until everyone else had passed and then just follow them out. And then they'll then. Sorry? Right. And anyway, it was a ace if they split the whole yard in until all the Jews crossed. And... To m- the as right, and Simcha's pointing out that we have a general rule that, I, that in general, that Mepharshim often tell us that Akash Baruch Hu prefers to minimize Nisim. He does them where appropriate, where necessary, but Akash Baruch Hu does not gratuitously just perform Nisim. So, what was the point of this Nisim? You know, anyway, there would have been a great Nisim. Why would Hashem have to do this? This is what Chazal said, that the that the Uru, after the water went back, there was a second nate where the and then carried people over. The Radak, the Radak has a long discussion of this. The Radak is very puzzled because of these considerations and other considerations, very puzzled by this Midrash. After explaining the Pesukim and what he considers the, the Pshat, that when it says the people passed Lufnei Ha'am, it means the people who used to be with Ha'am, the it that used to be Lufnei then passed, or that it means they passed in the presence of the Ha'am, then he brings the midrash. He says, "Razal, the the the, the, of, the of the Talmud, of the, the midrashic period, they explain this entire narrative uh, entirely different." And he goes back to uh, he goes back a while back to Paragimel, all the way back to the beginning of the story. In Paragimel, in, in Pesaches, it says, "When it, it says when Hashem gave instructions to the to Yeshua for the crossing of the Garden." So in Peragim it says, You, Yoshua you shall command the Kohanim who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant as <laughs> follows. When you reach the, the edge of the Mehayarden, stop in the Yardin. So Rashi over there says, what does Kitzay Mehayarden mean? That uh, as soon as you enter the Yardin, you're still on the eastern side of the, you're, you're just into the, on the eastern edge of the Yardin, stop right there. And then when they left, they left back on the eastern side and they had this name. So Radak says, that's how Chazal understood. That Kachuta, that, 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 that you would learn the Kohadim went to the middle or all the way to the western side of the Yardin and stopped right before leaving the Yardin. But Chazal, Rashi say that, they, that it was the. They stepped into the Yardin and stopped really on the eastern edge of the Yardin, as we explained the, the Midrash. And then, as Rashi says here, and then when they left the Yardin, they left backward. They left onto the east bank of the Yardin. And then, then it was the second Ace that the Darwin flew them over the Yardin. Radak says that he is very very puzzled by this Anitama Mizah uh, Midrash. He says I'm 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 quite puzzled by this Midrash that he, the, the, the Radak has two grounds of objection. One of them one one set of grounds is textual. Where do they see this in the Psukim? That, that the Chazal, when they have, when they, when they do Midrash and Psukim, they usually have some basis. They usually have some indication in the Psukim why the words shouldn't be interpreted as other commentaries do. So where, where is this in the Psukim? The Psukim read very naturally. says, "But uh, well, we explained it that they, that they, that they left." ...to the west bank of the Yardin after everyone else had crossed. Where did will get this idea from that they left backwards to the east bank of the Yardin? Even if we assume that when the Pusik says back in paragimmel that they went to ktsay HaYardin... ...and meant the eastern edge, even if we accept that reading... ...that the Gladim were standing the whole time on the eastern on, on the eastern edge of the Yardin... ...it still doesn't doesn't follow that they, when they left, they left backward to the east. It could be that they, they walked across the rest of the Yardin to the west after everyone else had crossed. Why, it's, it's, Regardless of how you interpret ktsay HaYardin there... There's still no, no obvious reason why we have to assume that when they left, they left backwards to the east and flew over. He says, he actually brings another interpretation of the Midrash, that the Midrash doesn't mean that the Orin flew them over the Yardin. The Midrash means that, that they left they, the Kohanim left to the west bank of the Yardin. But since the Jews were farther ahead, they had been traveling the whole time, to catch up, the Orin then had to give them a, kind of a turbo boost to, to catch them back to their place in front of the Yardin. Even he says, you know, why you know, why was that necessary? Maybe the Jews just waited for the rn one. The Jews surely had enough patience to wait for the miraculous Aaron to, to get to come, back, to come back to them. Why would you have to assume the Rn had to give them a supercharged boost to the front? He doesn't understand either on the ground... So first of all, on the ground to the psukim, he says he doesn't see why there, where there's any textual basis for the idea that the Aaron was flying the Jews in a supernatural way, flying, the, flying itself in the Kohanim in a supernatural way from place to place. And further, the Radak says... His other objection is, he says that the, he says, you know, again, where do you see this in the psockim, and he says, also he says that, he also objects that the, at that point you're busy, that's he says that the, the, the Psuckin should have indicated this. If, if this was really if this was really a great ace, such a great ace, the Psukin would have indicated it and that not only is there right, there's an absence of source for this. And, and furthermore he's saying that the Derek of the Psukin is always to uh teach us about the Nisim. The Nisim, part of the reason Hashem made these Nisim is to instill faith in us and under belief in his greatness and power. So why wouldn't the Pseud talk about this nase if it really occurred? And furthermore, he says, right, why did the Aaron have to do this? What was the necessity for this nase He says that the, he says, he says, the, what was the need for this? So, in in general, this is a theme that that occurs. It's it's a very, very important theme in in Pashanut HaMikra, and biblical exegesis. There's a great divide, a great tension between Midrashim and the school of commentaries that tend to follow the Midrashim and the Mepharshim of Pshat and the rationalist, more philosophically oriented commentaries who tend to uh, not stipulate as many Nisim as the Midrashim do. The, and, and, the, and the issues are really these issues. The issues that are the repeatedly that we have throughout throughout the Chumash, throughout the Navi, is these three, these three points, basically. That, first of all, what right do we have to read things into the psukim that aren't there? If the psukim don't say it, you know, why, would we, uh, why would we assume it? And then, second, it, it, it's actually uh, strange that the ace really occurred that the psukim wouldn't indicate it. That the Torah makes such a big deal out of even relatively uh, small nisim. If all these even greater nisim occurred, you know, when 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 Sarah has a child after ninety years, the Torah makes a uh, tremendous deal out of it. So, so then, it, it, if even greater nisim occurred, aron flying through the air and carrying people, you would think that the Torah would. Uh, you know, we have airplanes today, so things flying through the air are not so uh, don't seem so bizarre to us. But you know, Arun flying through the air and carrying people is a tremendous nisim. Why wouldn't the Torah yeah, emphasize well, that? Arun didn't, have an didn't have an engine or, or wings or, or right or, or wheels, wheels, right? Or and third, the, the other point that my son raised that the that the Akash Baruch generally does Nisim when there's some need for it, when there's some necessity for it. Why would uh, you know, why, why would this happen? So the, these three issues come up repeatedly throughout the they come up repeatedly in debates on, on Pasha Parsha uh, debates over whether uh, about various Nisim. It's sort of like it's unnecessary to read anything. Right. Because the next right. already occurs. So like so so after after the past the they wait for the Aaron and the Quran in, Ayahor, Shepard, and they continue the journey. Right, right. So you're, you're stuff in and right. So you're pointing out that we have a great naze, the Tara gives us a great naze, the all circum- the circum read naturally, so so what pushed Khazal to, to 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 read the psychom this way? And, and, and you have, we have similar debates in a number of other places. It's kind of a, a very a, a kind of a deep uh, methodological divide between different commentaries in midrashim. I'll talk about some of the other places we have this. okay? You okay? So one famous argument about this occurs between Ramban and Ibn Ezra. The end of beginning of Chumash so it's, it, there's a Midrash that says that Yocheved was born Ahum, that Yocheved, the daughter of Levi, the mother of Moshe, was born when the Jews entered Egypt. The, this one has a source, the, this one has a clear textual source, or uh, not a clear textual source, but a concrete textual source. It says that the, it says that when, when, when the Torah lists the, the Yaakov and his family, the, the members of the family who went, and it lists and enumerates the members of his family who went down to Egypt, so it says that there were 30, it breaks it down by the different mothers, it says Leah had 33, 33, 33 members of Leah's of Leia, branch of the family, and there were a total of 70. The problem is that if you count, if you count the actual names that are mentioned, there are only 32 in, uh, among Leah's descendants, and only uh, 69 in Yaakov's total descendants who are enumerated. So where does that extra one come from? so Chazal said that the last one was Yocheved she wasn't listed because she wasn't born when they were still traveling down to Mitzrayim she was born uh, under the wire at the very last second so when they got to Mitzrayim they were 33 and 70 even though she's not listed earlier because she wasn't born until the last minute Well, the, the, the issue here is that this implies a tremendous nace because the Jews were in Egypt around 210 years according to the Midrash Moshe was 80 years old so can tell us when they left Egypt so if his mother Yochebed was born if so, uh, if 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 his if his mother Yehoved was born when they when they entered Egypt, then his mother was uh, 130 years old when she gave birth to him. So the the tar makes again such a big deal out of Sarah giving birth at 90, and Yehoved is giving birth according to the Midrash at 100 and, at 130. With, uh, almost 50 percent 50 more. So Ibn Ezra is very critical of this approach. He says that. This is a a nace that's completely uh, not mentioned in the psukim, Chazal say, Chazal inferred from the idea that there are 70 and 33 mentioned, but there are other ways to explain that. Some say that Yaakov was included in, uh, in Leah's family and the total of 70. Yaakov himself made number 70 and number 33. So there are other interpretations. Some say it's a round number. 70 is just uh, rounded up to 70. doesn't explain the 33 so well. So there are other approaches as well. In this yeah, case, at least, right, we don't round up to 33, so that's, uh, that's still a little problematic. But so, but in this case, it was, while there are other interpretations of the of what happened, there, at least there there's some concrete textual basis for the nase. But nevertheless, Ibn Ezra is uh, Ibn Ezra is very critical. He says that's not how we learn Chomish, we, we don't invent. You know, you know the the, the of the Torah is to make a big deal out of nisim, and for the Torah to just you know hint at this in an oblique way by listing thirty three and seventy. If it really happened, he said, uh, if, it, if it really happened, then the Torah should have indicated this. So the Benezra says, it's not Pshat, Kevin was born much later, she was much younger when she had Moshe Rabbeinu, and, uh, and he, doesn't, uh, he doesn't accept this Midrash. Ramban points out that either way it was really something of a nace, because to the extent that you say Yechevet was born much later, then that means Levi would have been really old when she gave birth to, uh, when he gave birth to her, because uh, maybe a man giving birth very late in life is not as much of a nace as a woman giving birth very, very late in life. But either way, the Ramban points out that there's something very strange about this family, that there's something very unusual and miraculous about the family. But the Ramban has a very long rebuttal of it. and as you we much of the Ramban's commentary to the Torah is essentially a uh, defense of the tradition, defense of Chazal's approach to things. Especially when he feels Ibn Ezra is being disrespectful to Chazal. He defends the traditional approach. He says, Rahman explains why the why the Neviim don't why the Torah doesn't always make a big deal out of every nace that Chazal tell us occurred." Rahman has a very uh, important idea. He says. It's, uh, it's a complicated idea. I don't think I'm going to do it justice. I haven't seen it, uh, I haven't actually read it recently. But the Ramban says that a nisim that was announced in advance by a navi, it was predicted, it was foretold in a formal way by a navi, those are the nisim that the Torah emphasizes. When, when the three Malachim came to Avram and said, A year from now you're going to have a child, the navi, the navim had explicitly and prominently foretold uh, the future, and then it occurred. And those are the nisim the Torah talks about. They're the nisim that were predicted in advance by, by Moshe, by Aaron, by the by, by by the three angels who appeared to Abraham, those nisim the Torah the Torah talks about that helped people believe in the idea of nevuah, the idea that the navi is, uh, to, is communicates with God, and that uh, but nisim that just occurred without without advance notice, without those nisim were a different sort of nisim. Those nisim the Torah doesn't always emphasize, and there are numerous other examples of this as well. So, for example, oracastim. So the, one of the most well-known midrashim about the the biography of the patriarchs, about Nisim in general, is the is, is the famous story of Nimrod casting Avram into a fiery furnace for uh, for the, his heresy of uh, not accepting idols, not accepting his, his monotheistic beliefs. And Hashem saves Avram, saves him from the fire, uh, the, that saves Evram from the fire, and uh, and eventually you know makes it to Eretz Canaan and so on. So this entire thing is not mentioned anywhere in the Psukim. The Psukim mention a place called Urkastim, but they don't Ur-Kastim is a, is a name of obscure meaning and origin. And the Midrash says that it comes from the language of fire, the the Ur, the fire of the Kastim, of the Chaldeans, and the and the fire refers to this this furnace where they threw up rum in. But all that is a midrash, all that is not in Psukkim. And uh, Ibn Ezra, I think, implies that he doesn't accept this either, as I recall correctly. He explains <laughs> the pasuk of differently, and uh, I think alludes to the midrash, I think, and says, you know, that's the midrash; it's not, it's not Krat. And uh, so, again, the nisim that are not explicit in the psukim, Ibn Ezra tends to be skeptical of. And the uh, Ramban he says, no, that Chazal, Chazal it's, it's important, it's important to study chumash with Chazal, with midrash, and uh, studying just the text without the midrash, without Teresh Balpeh, is lacking, and we have to trust Chazal in what they tell us, and sometimes there are Nisim are not mentioned in the Torah, and the Ramban gives his doctrine, his explanation of why. He says it's because Nisim that weren't predicted in advance by Yanavi and the Torah doesn't always mention. So that's an example of, uh, of uh, the example of Yocheved, of Orkastim. Another one, I spoke about this recently, is the, is the nase of the, the story of Lot's wife. So Lot's wife, the pasuk says, But is that the, the, the Malachim instructed Lot and his family, do not turn around, that you should not gaze behind you at all the destruction. Lot's wife did, But and she turned into a pillar of salt. So that reading of the posse, she turned into a pillar of salt, is the standard explanation that most commentaries accept, and the Chazal seems to accept this in a couple of places they seem to refer to this pillar of salt as, a, as an actual historical artifact. They, the Gemara in Bracha says, if you see Lot's wife, you make a bracha, in yeah, on the tragedy of, of his wife being destroyed by turning into salt. And the Gemara elsewhere talks about the halachas of Tuma, whether, whether the pillar of salt has the status of a human cadaver, which, which transmits tumah, Tumas Meis, or not. But the summary him say, Lot's wife did not turn into salt. Ral-Bag, they, they explain differently. The, the al says it means that the whole area, that the, the, the of malach, means the whole area turned into a wasteland of salt. He says, when it says, it means the commandment was to rush and not, uh, not, not, to, not to rubberneck, not to delay and, and, and be curious of what's going on. Run, you get out of here before the place is destroyed. She didn't. She uh, you know, couldn't, couldn't, uh, couldn't tear herself away fast enough and the whole land became a of Melech and she was caught up in the destruction and, uh, and died. Well, the way Shar says it is that she didn't turn into salt. What happened was there was salt descending in a maelstrom of uh, of chemicals and so on, and she just was buried by the whole by the whole salt, and there was a human like mound of salt was all that was left of her. Because she just like people get snowed under, she just got you know covered with salt, was trapped and died. She didn't actually transform into salt. So, so the reasons for this are various for explaining this. But one of the issues is that. Some of the Rishonim may have actually held this as judicial mikra, but they Bag In particular, says the reason he does not want to understand the pasuk kapshuto, he agrees this is not maybe pasum shot, but I think he says that Hashem doesn't make nisim for no reason. Hashem makes a nace to save Sadiqim or people who he wants to save from danger, or he wants to de- he wants to show his great uh, his great strength. Like Hashem says in, the, in in the Exodus, he says, "I'm doing nisim so that you shall tell your children and your descendants or the, 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 the how how I." how I toyed with Egypt and how powerful I was and redeemed you that's what we say in the Teres that Mepharshim explained that Hashem created the whole world but you didn't see that this you saw you saw my 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 power in redeeming you from Egypt so Hashem makes Nisim for those reasons either because it's necessary to save the Jews to save people he, they, that, he, that he cares for or because to show his great power to demonstrate his, uh, his great power Turning Lot's wife into salt doesn't fit into either of those categories. There, there was no great need to destroy this woman. Hashem wanted to punish her; he could have brought about her death in uh, many other ways. And it wasn't a big public demonstration. You know, and, like, and like you said before, there was all destruction of stone. You know, how much is added by turning one person into salt? It just—it it doesn't seem—it seems to be pointless and not—not not really. Uh, it doesn't seem to be explainable in the overall program that, that God has, the way He runs the world. So Ralbag says he interprets this as uh, differently because he doesn't want to say it was kind of a gratuitous snace without any real, uh, without any real reason. We mentioned, a, we mentioned a few weeks ago we mentioned Ralbag's approach to the splitting of the sea and the splitting of the Ardeen. He doesn't deny that it was a ace, but he minimizes it. He says there was a wind or there was a crystalline substance holding up the the water. Because again, he says that the, that the derech of the of Hashem is to minimize nisim. We mentioned, I think, the, the idea of, of the teva. Noach built a teva, even though the ramban people point out. But if, 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 if we're strictly following the laws of nature, a box, an ark wouldn't have really been big enough to, to to save every living organism in the world. So after, it was a nice. The Ramban says, but Hashem minimizes nisim, so Hashem made the, Hashem told to, to do a box, to do as much as you can, to do as much as humanly possible, and I think that's also why the, the table was huge. That's why the table was very large, because again, he had to do more than a token effort. He had to do whatever was really feasible, and Hashem would do the rest. We find this in many other places in, in Nisim as well. So, one of my favorites is another Al The Al Bagh was a follower of the Rambam, a great philosopher, and sometimes a little extreme in his, uh, in his rationalism. and uh, insi- insi- He believed in Nisim, but he insists on explaining as much as possible. So, it says that uh, in Pashat B'Shalach, it says, after the Jews left the cross, the Yam. It says they were in the desert and they didn't have water. At one point, it says they found water that was bitter. The place called Mara, bitter. They found water that was not potable. They, they couldn't drink it; it was too bitter. So the Jews cried out in, in deprivation. What? And they threw a bitter stick. Right. So the, the so the the, the pasuk says, Simcha says they threw a that the, they threw a bitter stick into the water. The pasuk says, By Erei Hashem ate. Hashem showed Moshe a certain stick and by and he, and he threw the stick into the water and the water became sweet and that place was called Maram and they sweetened the water by a stick so Simcha mentioned it was a bitter stick that's what Rashi brings Rash, Rashi brings from Chazal that the stick itself was bitter and it was a nace betok nace it was a double nace so that it was, it was, it was paradoxical that a bitter, a bitter stick could sweeten the water so A, it was a magnified nace, and some some of the freshmen explain uh, in, a, in a way of Musa or philosophy what, what, what the lesson of this double nace was. Theral says it was a sweet stick. It was not a bitter stick. It was uh, a sweet stick. Now, he says it was a nace. It wasn't some kind of magical water purification tablet that actually had the power, according to science, to purify the whole water. It wasn't uh, It wasn't that good, whatever it was. But nevertheless, it was a sweet stick, the Ralbag says, because, again, when Hashem performs nisim, Hashem prefers to minimize the nisim, not do more than necessary. So a sweet stick is closer to teva than a bitter stick. He says, but what about the Chazal say it was a bitter stick? The, the midrash at Simcha brought. So he says, Chazal, the Ralbag has a very uh, provocative approach to some of these midrashim. He says... Chazal were really exaggerating. This was hyperbole. So Chazal were making a point that it was a ace. Don't think that this was like some of the 19th century uh, biblical scholars said. These were naturalistic events. That the Torah was magnifying into nisim. There was an approach that denied nisim entirely. So Chazal were emphasizing that's not what happened. This was a ace. This was not some kind of high-tech water purification tablet that could really cure biderkateva the whole water. It certainly was an ace. Because the way Chazal expressed that was by saying it was a bitter stick. They're making a point. No, I don't know. I don't think so. It just says that the stick, he cast the cast of stick into the water, and the water changed. So Chazal said it was, a, it, was it was it was a bitter stick, and, but the Rabban, the they meant it was actually a bitter stick, and it was a double mace. Rabban says, no, of course, now it's not the way Hashem works. It was certainly a, a sweet stick. Chazal was just making a point that that, that uh, Hashem can do anything. It was a nace, that Hashem has the power. If He wants to, we could even make a bitter stick the Chazal was just emphasizing that it was a nace that Hashem is omnipotent and could do whatever he wants but, but it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't a uh, you know, the way I said it before it was, it was as opposed to the, those who believed that, that it was as naturalistic I'm not sure that's exactly how the Ralbag says he says to show you that Hashem can do whatever he wants similarly the Ralbag says it about Yocheved he says when Chazal Ralbag, like Ibn Ezra does not believe that Yocheved was born when they entered Egypt because that would have made her 130 when Moshe was born and that's uh, an incredible nace the Torah would have emphasized the says she was born much later, like Ibn Ezra. So what did Chazal mean when they said she was 130? Ibn Ezra just says, like, he dismisses the Chazal. But the uh, al says, again, Chazal were exaggerating, to make a point. Chazal were saying, they were teaching people you should know that Hashem is all-powerful. If Hashem wants, he can make a 130-year-old have a baby also. The Chazal sometimes, it was kind of a literary approach. Chazal was just saying that, uh, with Derek Drush, if Hashem wanted to, he could make a 130-year-old woman have a baby as well. That, that's all they were saying. They, they didn't mean to actually say historically that's what happened. A very modern kind of approach, but a very uh, provocative approach, but the al is so convinced that Hashem does not make gratuitous Nisim and is so reluctant to introduce Nisim with psukim don't indicate them with and with psukim should have if it was really such a nice so the is that al Bag goes this far and says that and says that he has uh, that, 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 that he's not willing to accept uh, to to accept these nisim. And in general, interpreting it can have like if you're interpreting it can actually have a negative people you know willing to accept it up to a certain point but once you go beyond you know you know rationally it doesn't make any sense why they wouldn't want to like you said if it's if it's uh sweet right so Dr. Rapp is pointing out that this actually could be a downside as well. That by magnifying Nisim uh, beyond any beyond b- beyond measure beyond what so the can say, you might run the risk of turning off some people of saying that this is just too uh, extreme, too bizarre. Yeah, maybe that's a concern as well. The the in many many of the Nisim of Tanakh, we actually find debates about how how great they really were and how and whether they even happened at all. So, for example, the there are two stories in Malachim, at least two stories of. People performing teshuva, <laughs> the resuscitation of the dead. Elio and Alicia—they they both revive similar stories. They both revive a child who's, uh, who's, who's dead, and they, and out of out of uh, out of gratitude to the mother who they owed uh, who they owed Ha-Kar Zatow, they they revive the children. There's actually a debate whether those children were actually dead or not. The talmudim say they died. There are some who say that they fell into a deep coma or they were near death, but they weren't actually dead. Again, whatever the argument is there, the Tsukum do indicate they were dead. That's not a case of a a nace not mentioned. The Tsukum do say they were dead. Nevertheless, some felt that that would have been just kind of a a wildly disproportionate nace, apparently, and some of them actually reduced those stories by saying that the... Right, either the Torah's exaggerating or the Torah's making a kind of... uh, Right, it was so close to dead. So the Torah kind of says they were dead, they were on death's door, they were on the verge of death. But many, many places throughout uh, throughout Tanakh, we find that we find this cleavage between two schools of thought. That the, the, the Rambam in a letter puts this very, 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 uh, very sharply. He says. There are two schools of thought, he says. The Ramam very much had an opinion as to which school was correct, but he says there are two schools of thought. There are, there are, there are the masses, the, you know, the unsophisticated masses, he says. Who, who, Ramam sometimes could be very elitist. The Ramam says there are the masses who, 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 who are you know, the, the religiously devout but you know, philosophically unsophisticated masses, the, 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 the more nisim they can find, the more nisim they can introduce to the, to the, to the psukim, the happier they are. and Everything is a nace, the, the, the less teva, and the more nace there is, the, the happier they are. He says, my approach and the approach of the, the other philosophers is just the opposite. We believe that Hashem created a world that runs according to the laws of nature even though Hashem can and does sometimes override that by performing miracles, those are very much the exceptions rather than the rule. And we don't try to introduce Nisim gratuitously at, at, every, at every turn, at every corner. Where the Torah makes it clear that an ace occurred, then we say an ace occurred, he says. But the, we, we don't just say that Nisim happened uh, every time, and we try to limit the, the, the scope of these Nisim. And then, and that's where the Ramath which Tomah Tcheis HaMesim, which he insists that he believes in, but he says not every mention of Tcheis, mention of Tcheis in Tanakh should be interpreted as actual cases. he says, and uh, because again, Hashem makes nisim, but uh, but rarely. You know, the, the nisim are, are rare and exceptional cases, and we shouldn't be running to introduce to introduce nisim around every uh, around around every corner. This this argument actually recently flared up again, just in the last few weeks. It, what? Uh, my, my, my father always reminds me, he says, you know, the young, he says, you know, every time you discover something, you think this is something new, you think that you have, you have a new idea, he says, the, the world works in cycles, uh, ideas work in cycles, everything, you know, most things you know, that, that, that come up have come up before, so the recently there was a very sharp controversy that uh, came to the fore about a a chumash, a, a popular modern edition of the chumash called Pshut Yoshal Mikra. So, like like the title sounds, the, 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 these these are from people, the, the you know, Orthodox people in Eretz Israel, I think, are producing a chumash, produced a called Pshut Yoshal Mikra, where the focus is on pshat. The focus is on explaining the explaining the the pesukim pshat. They they play up the, the Rishonim and the classic sources that explain Kapshat, and conversely they they play down or ignore very often the Mefarshim who explain Alpi Midrash, including Rashi. They they kind of dethrone Rashi a little bit from his. I haven't seen this since I'm just going on what I read in the on the blogs, but apparently they they displaced Rashi a little bit from his preeminent place as the. Up, the, the preeminent commentary, and they, they you know, they, they, they took the attitude that Rashi often has midrash, and we're going to focus more on pietushel mikro. So the Herzkumish, right? So the the. the the, the Herzchomish does this a lot. The, the, the Hertzkomish uh, one of his goals was kind of like Dr. Rapp was saying before, is, it, it was to make the Torah more easily digestible by modern people, by modern educated Western people who would have trouble uh, accepting the the, the, the the wildly supernatural and kind of uh, otherworldly versions of many stories in Tanakh. So a, a lot of the goal of Rabbi Hertz was to was to kind of naturalize, you know, without denying the fundamentals of the misera, that God gave us the Torah and that he performs miracles occasionally, but very much also to kind of uh, make the Torah more, bring it more in line with modern sensibilities. And everybody heard sometimes goes overboard. So, for example, the, uh, what one piece I wrote about years ago was in the end of Parash of Horatius it says that there's a very strange passage about the B'nei Ha'elohim, the, these angelic uh, beings, who, apparently, who intermarried with people and produced Nephilim. So, the, the, one reading of the Psyrkim seemed to me these were fallen angels. There are some Midrashim that say these were fallen angels that they had uh, degraded and uh, lost some of their spiritual elevation, and they, they were consumed with lust, and they married... Uh, beautiful human women. That, that, that that's one version of the. There are other ways to explain the sukkim as well. Some say the benei Elohim were princes. They were uh, aristocrats and princes who married the uh, women whatever they wanted. But uh, there are some midrashim that say that it was uh, that these were fall, fallen angels. So Rabbi Hertz says that you know, fallen angels is an alien concept to Judaism. There's no such thing. It's not. You know, we don't believe in such things, etc. And he, there's no Jewish source for this, no traditional. I mean, Hertz overstates the case. Rabbi Hertz overstates the case. It's certainly true that there are other ways to learn the psukim, and it's certainly true that. It is uh, a somewhat uh, problematic concept, but there are authentic, uh, authentic traditional Jewish sources that very much do believe this. So Rabbi Hertz, again, had a program of, uh, my understanding is, had a program of, of wanting to make the Chumash more uh, appealing to modern sensibility, so he kind of downplayed, or uh, downplayed, or ignored, or omitted certain things, certain aspects of Armasura that are more alien to the modern sensibility and played up the more rationalistic. Right, so the the Tutusul Mikra is a similar approach, it's focused maybe less on the philosophical and the the modern side of it focused more on the the idea of Pshat, and as I always point out, as many people point out, Pshat is not a modern thing. The, The Rishonim Many of the Rishonim loved Pshat. Many of the, the great Rishonim loved the study of Pshat. The, even in terms of the famous Rishonim, so Rashi does not always say Pshat, but the Ramban sometimes does, often brings midrashim. but many of the Rishonim were committed to Pshat. Rashbam is the famous example, Rashi's grandson. R- Rat is has a famous comment where he says he, he challenged Rashi and, and said you, you should have stuck more to Pshat, and Rashi, he says, conceded to a certain extent that he should you know, rewrite certain things to, uh, to, you know, to, to emphasize Pshat or to introduce Pshat more. Uh, Ibn Ezra, of course, it typically explains Madarach pshat. Bekhar Shar, Yosef Bekhar was a student of Rabbeinu Tam. One of the great French scholars, Bicharshar, is a uh, you know, wildly off-the-chart shot-oriented text that he frequently says things that make your hair stand on end. The way they completely uh, diverge from Midrashim and Chazal. So the idea of explaining Pshat, whatever the philosophical reason was, well, was an ancient idea that it was, it, was, it was very, very popular at the time of the Rishonim, and there were whole schools of Mefarshay Pshat. So, so this chumash, whether motivated by Rabbi Hertz, like modern sensibilities, or motivated by the, the ancient medieval love of pshat, or whatever it was, so they, they did this chumash that, that, that focuses on pshat, that uh, de-emphasizes certain midrashim and certain commentaries which were beloved and popular as, as, as the kids who all learned them in school. They de-emphasized that as not being pshat, and they elevated other ideas which are often at odds with the madrashim as, as pshat. So uh, over time, apparently opposition from, from very conservative circles has surfaced that this is against Hermesera, that, that, that uh, deposing Rashi and, and claiming that Rashi didn't do pshat and, and elevating pshat is, uh, is against the tradition and, and that it's disrespectful to Chazal. Again, very much the similar arguments to the ones Ramban made against Ibn Ezra and the ones that, uh, that we found in earlier generations as well, but, but they, they came out with a very, very sharp series of attacks. Uh, American Russian Yeshiva and gedol torah Israeli Russian Yeshiva and gedol torah they've, they've come out with some very sharp critiques of this project on the grounds that it's... Uh, and one of the issues specifically was Nisim. They pointed out that, they, that this, this, this anthology, this commentary, traditional Mikra, tends to very much downplay the Nisim, the great Nisim, like Rukashtim, and the great Nisim that the children will learn this in school, and so on, the... That 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 they that they are deemphasizing this in favor of what they consider traditional Mekirah, and they argue that this is a slap in the face and a rejection of uh, of the of the Masora, which has kind of canonized and uh, sanctified certain ideas as being part and parcel of our Masora and uh, yeah. And one of the issues was Nissan, One of the issues was that the the, the Pshat approach is often dismissive, or uh, of, many of many of the Nisim that have become quite uh, popular in Midrashim. And uh, so the, the, getting back to the Radak here, the Radak we've been discussing, so the Radak, after having all these questions on, on why Hazel did this, and where they saw this, and, and so on, and what was the need for this, the Radak, the, the Radak was a follower of the Rambam, the, the Radak was a great admirer of the Rambam, he uh, he felt the Rambam's contributions with philosophy and science to Torah were great. However, the Radak was also fairly traditional. The, the Radak, at the end of the day, was reluctant to uh, completely drop something Hazal said. That even though, even though some of the more diehard followers of the Rambam like Ralbag. You know, we're quicker to reject Chazal or to totally reinterpret it to bring it more in line with Shat and rationalist sensibilities. Radak was was more traditional and was generally reluctant to say Chazal is just wrong or Chazal dismiss Chazal as being midrash. Often he says Zahu midrash, but was as follows. In this case, after all his uh, after all his uh, urgent questions against Chazal, it's very important to note that the, the Radak ends by saying he says the very last line. He says as follows: He says. At the end of the day, he, he defers to Chazal's greatness and authority, he says, or sort of defers, he says, They said this, they knew what they were doing, they, if they said it, I give them the benefit of the doubt that they had, uh, I'm sure they knew what they were doing. Their, their wisdom, their understanding was broader than ours. So even though I have a lot of trouble with this, he says I have no I have no resolution for you. I, I, I can't explain or uh, rationalize what Chazal were doing here. He says, and his last line is, I defer to them. They had great wisdom, and I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to I'm not going to reject them. He says I don't understand it. I, I find what they're saying here very problematic. However, he says their their, their wisdom is greater than ours, and. Uh, and I don't, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to say, you know, more than that, I'm not going to say. You know. And this is, the, this is the redox approach in some other cases as well. There's one other place that comes to mind, maybe we'll get to it eventually, uh, in, in, not for a while. The, the Radak on Sefer Shmuel. So Sefer Shmuel has a sensational, incredible account of Shaul and the witch where Shaul wants to communicate with Akash Baruch he's in disgrace Akash Baruch does not want to communicate with him he refuses to send him a Navi or a batumim Shaul is desperate for some kind of communication with Hashem so he seeks out a witch, a necromancer, a balasov, and he asks her to raise the shade of Shmuel, his great teacher, from the, from the dead. And she does, apparently. She raises the spirit of Shmuel, and Shmuel talks to Sheol, and so on, and uh, the news is grim. He's going to die the next day in battle, and uh, that's what happens. So the Radak over there says, an, an incredible passage in the Radak, one of the most incredible uh, sections of Parshana Samikra I've ever read. The Radak says that the Gaonim, the Gaonim, the great leaders of the yeshivas and Bavel and Surin from Medisa, he says the Gaonim disagreed as to how to understand this narrative. They all agree, he says, that the story of Balasov, that the concept of Balasov, that the idea of necromancers who can raise the dead, is his preposterous. They all agree it's, it's lies and, and chicanery and fraud, there's no such thing as Balasov. And they're all frauds like they are today. So what happened in the story? What is the Nubby describing over there? So some of them said the, the Nubby's describing fraud. The Nubby's describing uh, she hoodwinked Shoal and she when it describes that Shmuel arose and spoke to him, that was all from Shoal's perspective. What Shoal thought he was seeing really, she, she was manipulating him. She had a guy, a ventriloquist, he used to cast his voice. She, she she knew her business, like like the modern uh, like modern mediums and stuff can do. But it's all it's all shecker, he says. That's shulban ben Chafni's opinion. The other Gonim said they, they feel that's too radical a rereading of the tsukim They say that Balasov in general is Shekher, but in this case Hashem wanted to send Shaul a message. So even though she was prepared to go through her whole fraudulent rigmarole, Hashem intervened and sent Shmuel down. She was even more surprised than anyone else, because she knew that her stuff was, uh, was bogus. That's why she was shocked as much as anyone or more. But, he, but the, the Gautam all agree that there's no such thing as Balasov and that she was a fraud. So the Radak he brings all this, and then he says that, but the truth is, Khazal seemed to believe in Balasov. Khazal talked about the Balasov in general, Balasov over here. Khazal seemed to believe that Balasov is a, uh, is a real thing. Redak says I defer to Chazal even though the Gaonim the great Gaonim who were we often say they were different Kabbalah that they understood the Masorah of Chazal better than we do because they were, they were hundreds of years earlier and they lived in Bavl where Chazal did even though the Gaonim all said that they apparently rejected Chazal or said we cannot accept Chazal at face value because it's against uh, it's against reason. We, we don't believe in Balazov. They said, Radak says uh, he's more traditional. He says if Chazal said it, if Chazal clearly believed in it, I can't be smarter than Chazal." So, uh, d- d- despite uh, despite his having a philosophical orientation, despite the goyim saying it's not real. The Radak says that he defers to Chazal. So that, that's the Radak. He, he was a supporter of the Rambam and some, some of the great controversies, I believe. He defended the Rambam against his detractors. So he very much uh, was an admirer of the Rambam and sympathetic to his philosophical worldview, but he also was a traditionalist at heart. He also was reluctant to say that uh, the Chazal were just wrong or misguided about something. And that's what he does over here. He says he, he, he on, on the merits, he says he has a lot of trouble understanding what Chazal were doing in, in this Midrash about the urn carrying people over the Yardin. It flies in the face of the way he tends to understand Pesukim. But at the end of the day, he says, the Chazal, were, were, Chazal were great, great Chachamim and Chazal were Datainu Rechava that he says, Datam me Middatenu I, he, he has he has intellectual humility he says Kaal I, I recognize that Chazal were, were great men and therefore he's reluctant and therefore he doesn't want to reject Chazal, so he kind of throws up his hands and says, I don't know, you know what Chazal did here you know, what pushed them to say this but at the end of the day he says this is what Chazal said and therefore uh, and therefore this is what uh, and th- he just he just leaves you there he says you know, I don't have an answer, I don't have an explanation for Khazal. But this is what Chazal said, and therefore I defer to their great wisdom. So they want to believe in NISA because you know, it gives a feeling of security. Control. So, so, control. so the more extreme the dice is, the greater is their yes. feeling of security. So, so that's so why they the, sort uh, of uh, go, you know, for right. sort of extra stuff that really isn't necessary to see that it's actually a So that's interesting. That's an interesting idea that, that people feel more comfortable believing in NISIM because it makes them feel more taken care of and more yeah. more right. secure that Hashem will perform in a similar vein, a related vein, there's also a great debate, a, a very, very great debate among Rishonim and Aharonim about the scope of divine providence. So we believe it's one of the Rambam's principles of faith that, that God intervenes in the world, that, that the whole Torah is based on that, that God protects the righteous and punishes the, the wicked, that, uh, that, that God runs the world. There is, however, a tremendous debate among the Rishonim and Achronim as to the scope and the universe, universality of this. How, does this mean that everything that happens in the in the world is God's direct will? There are certainly statements in Chazal to that effect, that a person doesn't injure his little finger, doesn't even bruise his finger unless the God wills it. Every blade of grass that grows is an angel that says, grow, that everything is being micromanaged, so to speak, and... Uh, every single thing. On the other hand, many Rishonim did not did not say this. Many, many Rishonim including Rambam, including Ramban in some places do not say this. They say that providence is limited, first of all, to humans not animals, and second that it's limited to righteous humans, humans who are deserving of providence, who are connected to God and, and they very much limit the scope of divine providence in various ways and in the time of the Rishonim this was fairly common a fairly common belief and as the Akronim developed the Hasidim uh, took a very... Uh, took a very maximalist stance on divine providence, that every, every, every worm, every blade of grass, everything is divine providence. And today, beyond Hasidim, I spoke about this recently, it has spread into the yeshiva world as well. The, the, the great thinkers in the yeshiva world have also taken this position, that they've considered it kind of axiomatic, that every single thing in the world that happens is, a, is, is God's direct will and intention. And even the Rishon say not like that, they, 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 they have elaborate re-readings of what they said, they, they, they interpret them to be saying bring them in line with what they believe, and they, 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 they deny that the Rishonim that I claimed before say that there's uh, limits to divine providence. They, 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 they do not agree with what I said. I, I said according to the way I read it and the way I think other people read it, but the, 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 the dominant approach in the yeshiva world is to say that every single thing is uh, is a result of divine providence. And again, and, and this, uh, this is back to Dr. Rapp's point, I, I think that besides the Many of the Yeshiva world thinkers are great thinkers and they believe so on philosophical grounds as well that everything is divine providence but also I think among the masses I think there's a certain uh, comfort in believing that ev- that you feel enfolded in God's grace that every single thing that happens to you God is orchestrating and that everything has a plan none of my suffering is meaningless none of my suffering is in vain everything that happens every, every everything that goes on in my life is for a reason and someday maybe I'll understand it and that is a very comforting belief, and, and there are great philosophers who defended it as well but, but the point is also, I think, that there's also, instinctively, there's a certain comfort, I remember once I was debating in yeshiva with a friend of mine so, so this friend was, was, was not a, uh, a, a philosophical thinker, it was very much a traditional uh, you know, chassidish you know, with, with, with uh, inclination toward chassidus when I was telling him that the Rishonim generally said that there is no hashgach on on animals, on vegetables, and so on he, he, he was shocked. He was disturbed. He said, when I eat my potato kogel on Shabbos, I feel much better thinking that that potato god uh, engineer, should end up on my table, that I can enjoy it on Shabbos in my potato kugel. Yeah, people find that more comfortable, and, and there are philosophical grounds for it as well. But it, it is, in my belief at least, and many others, that it was not the opinion of many of the Rishonim. They believe that it was it's just not correct. It actually comes up in this week's Pasha, Pasha's Vayishlach, that this actually comes up, Yaakov prepares uh, a three pronged approach, the Midrashim explained, to his, in his confrontation with Asav. He has Tfila, he has military preparations, he has uh, diplomatic and bribes and presents and so on. So um, the Akkadis Yitzchak, Mitzchak Harama, one of the great and one of the outstanding Spanish, the from the 15th century, from the pre exile uh, Spain. The, he has a long essay where he talks about how it's crucial to, to to not be a fatalist. It's crucial to act and to better your lot in every way you can. A person should avail himself of every possible mm-hmm. means at his disposal to ensure his safety and to promote his well-being, and that's what God wants. And God does not want us to simply say, "My my life is in your hands, God." And that's not the way God runs the world, and what about the question of divine providence? So he says that divine providence applies to some people in some cases. It's not guaranteed. It's not universal. Maybe Tzadikim get positive divine providence. Rishonim get negative divine providence. Beinonim, people in the middle, he says, there's a world, and the world runs according to the laws of nature, and a person has to realize that one of one of his justifications for doing this, he says, is that people have to realize that people in the middle are subject to the. To the vicissitudes of the, of the world, and people have to say, I may be in that middle category, and I'm going to have to uh, do do. My fate is in my hands to some extent, and that's what, that. That that's the correct philosophical doctrine. He says so. Many people find that less comforting than the belief that everything is up to Hashem, and yeah. So uh, Judaism is a is a big religion, and it has room for it has room for multiple uh, multiple different schools of thought.